Welcome aboard! We will be your guides during this magical journey into the movies. It's the perfect job for us because we love the movies. It's showtime! Ready when you are, CB! Action! Welcome to Monorail Radio episode number 175. I'm Sean. And I'm Jackie. And we are here very excited for this week's episode. But before we discuss this week's episode and before we introduce our new month, we do want to wrap up Jungle January. We got a very, very, very good email. I just, there's no way for me to explain. It's a very good email. From our very loyal listener, Melissa, who actually was the inspiration for Jungle January. She was. She wrote into us requesting 1994's Rudyard Kipling's The Jungle Book. Yeah. And from there, it gave me the idea to do a whole bunch of other titles, mainly because I've been wanting to watch Jungle to Jungle and review it since the inception of Monorail Radio. Yeah, but she gave us this really great detailed email in response to our review of 1994's version of The Jungle Book. And, and so she made a lot of really interesting points in this email. So I just want to highlight a couple of them. Um, the first being, because we discussed about, for me, part of what was missing from the 94 remake was kind of the lost charm of that coming-of-age story. Because, the you know, the purpose of the original Jungle Book and then in the Favreau version was getting young Mowgli to the man village. But she makes the point that in the Kipling books, which I had admitted on the show I hadn't read, um, there are elements of that book that actually do discuss Mowgli in the jungle as a man. The, so the, it's not, she says, it's not exactly taken from the book, in, and, and put into this film, but it's sort of a roundabout way of giving it a cap tip, which I thought was sort of interesting because there are so many Kipling books that the fact that they did take from that in, you know, in retrospect now, it actually does make sense that they would tell this version of the story. Right. And I'm actually surprised that they didn't do that in the animation, because when you consider something like Alice in Wonderland, yeah. it's all these different vignettes mashed up from the book and Alice's journey is sort of woven through it. So I'm actually surprised they didn't give Mowgli more of that arc in the animation. And then another interesting uh, point that she makes, because it, it was something that she had actually read, somebody else had commented on, that said that the human characters in this can be viewed as stand-ins for the animals. For example, Kitty's father is meant to represent Colonel Hathi because he is, in fact, a colonel in the film, Um she said that the doctor is meant to be Baloo. Boone, of course, would be Shere Khan. Um, and she wanted to know our thoughts on that. And it's, it's I'm really glad that she asked us about this and sent us this email because when I was watching, and I, I actually didn't think to make the point when we did the review, when they had Sam Neill's character, the colonel, I thought, well, I wonder if that is supposed to be a hat tip to Colonel Hathi. I wouldn't have necessarily connected the others to the other characters because right. you have a Baloo and a Shere Khan in this version. But I thought it was certainly interesting that she brought it up because I kind of thought that as well. No, and it's funny because each of those characters does have a bond with who it would have been in human form. Like uh, Sam Neill was afraid of the elephant and then John Cleese saves Baloo. Um, I know it wasn't something I really had considered as we were watching just because Boone was such a great villain all on his own. 
I never really, and there was a Shere Khan obviously on right. the screen in this film, so I never really thought to pair them up. But it it is an interesting point. It's interesting That's, to think about. Now I kind of want to watch it again with those eyes. Yeah, and then she points out with the CGI. She said, you know, that they're again and because it gets used so often today that having a real breathing animal on screen adds a nice quality that just can't be captured by a computer no matter how skilled the artist is and you know what i mean we have said that so many times that you know as advanced as cgi gets and as impressive as some of the cgi can be there is just nothing like capturing a real animal actor on screen for sure but we thank melissa for sending us that great email and for kind of inspiring that jungle january if you guys ever want to email us you can of course do so monorealradio at gmail.com we love hearing from all of you we will take your requests if we can spawn a whole month off of an idea great but we would love to hear your thoughts. And we've done it a couple of times at this point. So it really is fun sometimes when we kind of get that spark of inspiration from you guys. One so, little spark. One little spark. And no seven-hour wait for that popcorn bucket. I just give it to you for free. <laughs> but from one month to another, we are leaving the jungle and going to the Olympics. Because in February here, we do have the Winter Olympics in Beijing. So... I mean, it just makes sense because there are so many films that Disney has made. Disney loves that good sports film. Some that are based in real life, some that are not based in real life, but we have to do an Olympic month, right? It is the Winter Olympics. I personally have two films. Like, you waited since the inception to talk about Jungle to Jungle. I have two films that I've been sitting on because I've been waiting for this month specifically to do it. You have been very patient. I've been very patient. And it only makes sense to bat lead off, which is used to be a summer game in the Olympics, but baseball doesn't get played in the Olympics anymore. But forget the summer and the winter. We are starting off with 1993's Cool Runnings. Okay, what is your history with Cool Runnings? Because I have a very unique history with this film. The first time I watched it was with you. No. Yeah. No. Not for this week, but I had never seen it until you put it on. This was one of the ones that I had struggled going through film school having never seen because so many people would reference it. And I'm like, I got to watch it. I got to watch it. I got to watch it. And I just never did. I don't think I knew that when you watched it with me, it was the first time you had ever seen it. I think it was very early on in our relationship, and I didn't want to lose points. If I'm being honest with you, you <laughs> keeping, the, keeping that to yourself was probably a good idea. <laughs> it was probably the right move. My history with this film, we this was one wore out the VHS. We loved it. We loved it as a family. My father and I loved this because I am just such a huge John Candy fan, which I've not... I've not hid that on this show. I loved John Candy. If he was in it, I was seeing it. Um, but I watched this movie my entire life. This isn't like a Disney film, because sometimes, especially I think for a guy, when you reach that 13, 14, 15 years old, some of those Disney films you loved as like a five, six, seven-year-old, they're kind of like not cool to watch anymore. So you put them on the shelf until you're in your 20s because then you can appreciate them again. That was not the deal with Cool Runnings. I have literally been watching this movie 
I mean, more or less my whole life, since the age of seven. Let me ask you, though, do you consider this a Disney movie or do you consider it a John Candy movie? Because I feel like we've been talking about Tim Allen a lot recently, obviously. Um, I feel like with him, it's kind of one in the same. But I feel like, for me at least, because John Candy is roped in with all of the SNL bunch I kind of view it as like two separate things. It's a Disney movie because John Candy is a secondary character. Uncle Buck is a John Candy movie. Summer Rental is a John Candy movie. Yes. And it, both of those I've seen. So do I get my points back? Uh, yeah. Um, but like Spaceballs is a Mel Brooks movie that John Candy is in. Right. I would, top of my head... When you say Spaceballs, it's a Mel Brooks film. Right. So to me, this is a Disney film that John Candy is in. But I will... Okay. So I love this film growing up. My my circle of friends love this film in equal measure. So I have to tell you this story. I have not held back on the show the fact that I have worked in food and beverage for a long time. I tended bar for a very long time. So going back... It, crazy, it was eight years, actually. Oh, my gosh. Eight years ago, my friend and I, my very close friend and I, were tending bar at a restaurant here on the island, and it had come out that the Jamaicans had qualified for the Winter Olympics in the two-man bobsled competition, but they didn't have enough money to get to the Olympics. I want to say they were in Sochi at the time, but I, maybe, that, maybe I'm wrong about that. But they... The point Eight is, years ago, I think, was Sochi, yeah. So uh, they didn't have enough money to get there. So people started crowdfunding. So on like a week's notice, we decided that we were going to have a cool runnings night at the bar that we were working in, where we were going to show the movie on every on screen in the, in the bar, on loop. We were going to sell tie-dye shirts, and we were going to donate a portion of our tip jar to the Jamaican bobsled team. To the point where Winston Watts, who is one of the Jamaican bobsledders, shared our event on Facebook. And at the time, the bar owner was like, guys, I don't know about this. I don't think it's going to work. That bar that night had never made so much money. It was the biggest deposit we ever made. We were five deep at the bar from seven o'clock at night until four o'clock in the morning. I remember it well. Well, I I don't remember it well for all of the right <laughs> reasons. <laughs> that was the night that, I mean, most of the time when you would bartend and we would all go out in a group, you would drive me home, obviously. That was the night I actually fell asleep while you guys were closing up. That's right. I was so tired. It was so late. But that event went so far and wide. You guys drew people down beyond our friend group there were people there that were just coming out to support because they thought it was a great idea well they saw it on facebook they were just like how funny is this cool runnings night for the jamaican bobsled team i even had friends that showed up that didn't even know it was my event they just right. came out they're like i didn't know this was yours um and we raised a couple of thousand dollars that night for the jamaican bobsled team who did end up going to the olympics that year and the bar owner looked like irv's old coach yeah, just we, stunned. Yeah, totally, <laughs> totally stunned. So that is my history with Cool Runnings. So we know that the film has a massive, massive fan base. Some people go so far as to call it a cult classic, although it did very well at the box office. The question now, 
is do people love Cool Runnings as much as they did then? And does the movie hold up? This review is sponsored by the Hidden Mickey Supply Co. Products include Disney and Pixar-inspired 3D straw charms. Listeners of Monoreal Radio can get a 10% discount with the code MONOREAL10 at checkout. Visit Instagram or Etsy, search for Hidden Mickey Supply Co., and make sure you're checking back on Monday for new straw charm drops. All right, so it is Jamaica, November 1987 at the track and field Olympic tryouts. Hopefuls Darice Bannock and Yule Brenner are tripped when fellow runner Junior Bevel falls during the run and all three miss their chance to be Olympians. Disappointed that he won't follow in his father's footsteps, Darice tracks down Irv Blitzer, former gold medal bobsledder who once believed in starting a team of bobsledders with Jamaican sprinters because he thought they could push the sled very quickly down the track. At first, Irv has no interest in co- uh, coaching Darice until he finds out who his father was. Irv, Darice, uh, and Darice's best friend, Sanka, hold a meeting inviting others to join their team, but only Junior and Yule have interest. Yule, who blames Junior for keeping them out of the summer games, initially wants nothing to do with Junior, but agrees to do it as he thinks that going to the Olympics will make him rich and famous. After many trials and errors, Irv gets the guys prepared for the Winter Games, but the Olympic Committee in Jamaica refuses to fund the team as they think it would be viewed as a joke. When the guys fail to raise the $20,000 that they need because they start doing kind of like a ground roots uh, or a grassroots fundraiser, Junior sells his car, unbeknownst to his unsupportive father, and the five of them leave for Calgary. Upon arriving in Calgary, Irv calls in a favor with his former teammate, Roger, who's also the only one that's still speaking to him, to get them a used sled for the games. No one at the Olympics takes the Jamaican seriously, and the committee does everything possible to... uh, you know, well, the other teams do everything possible to alienate the Jamaicans, and the Olympic Committee continues to change the rules on the fly to keep the team out of the games because they think same thing. This is all being viewed as a joke. But despite being against all odds, the Jamaicans qualify for the 1988 Olympics. Darice is obsessed with acting like the Swiss team, while the others, namely Sanka, want to be authentically Jamaican. We also learn that Irv had his gold medals stripped after he hid weights in the front of his sled to make it go faster. After a disastrous first run, the team embraces their heritage and they adjust their focus and find themselves in contention for a medal. On their final run, the sled has a malfunction and that causes it to flip over. But... Darice wants to finish the race, so the four members of the Jamaican bobsled team carry their sled over the finish line and return home as heroes in their country. Um, man, oh man, uh, there's just so much to talk about here. Um, I want to get one thing out of the way because it's from the moment the film starts. So I know, I know I'm kind of jumping ahead a little bit here. I want to talk about how beautiful the cinematography is yes. in this movie. From that sunrise run open with Darice, from the minute the film starts to the minute the film ends, whether it's the, the scenes in Jamaica or the scenes in the bobsled or just the landscape in in Calgary, this is just absolutely stunning cinematography. And I think that it gets lost when you talk about some of the really great films that Disney has to offer. I completely agree. Uh, And especially, you know, 
it being juxtaposed from Jamaica to Calgary, they still managed to tonally keep the film looking the same. Yeah. Uh, and I think part of that is also threaded through the fantastic wardrobe. Yes. Because they made it work with these beautiful bright colors in Jamaica where the colors are sort of similar to that sunset. But then once you get to Calgary, it just pops right off the snow. So it's they did such an amazing job with that. It's beautiful. It is. And it, not only does it pop off the snow, but you have so many different countries. It's the Olympics. So many different countries flying their flags. So when, when you go to any Olympic game, whether it's in real life or in this film, like you are just predisposed to seeing so many different colors. So you're right. It just blends so beautifully from start to finish. And whether it is the costumes or the landscape, aesthetically, this film is just so pleasing and it is so beautiful. That I think that's the true mark of it is that they really, not only did they make it all work, but they made it look good with those loud 90s colors. Oh, for sure. Because that has nothing to do with the country that anyone is from. That's just what the 90s was. Right. Well, that, and that's the thing, right? It's, it's an early 90s film depicting the late 80s. So I think yeah. they really had their finger on the pulse of what was in style, what fashion was, but they completely knocked it out of the park. Yeah, the costumes are absolutely spectacular in this film. I also love um, the push cart derby open that we have here, other than Doris running you know, going for his, he's really just going out for a jog because he's training. But you get this push cart derby, you get introduced to Sanka, you see what he's all about, you see how close he and Doris are. It's really just a couple of lines that they share, but you know immediately these guys are best friends, they've been together for a long time, and they would fall on a sword for each other. It's a great introduction. What I also love is that they do such a great job of leaving the breadcrumb trail, establishing both skill sets. Yes. Well, really for the four of them, because uh, Doris, uh, ev everyone but Sanka is a runner. Right. Sanka does the push carts. Um, so I love that you can see how that would easily translate over to a bobsled team, as opposed to... Other movies of this ilk, kind of looking at you, Mighty Ducks, where you take like the ragtag bunch of people and you have to have them, you know, molded into shape and then you get the coach who's really hard on them. I feel like this could have very easily gone down that road and it doesn't. For sure. And it's just a really nice, lighthearted and fun open as well. So from there, they waste no time. That's the thing. And I'm going to bury this too. The pacing in this film is spectacular. It has a runtime of about an hour and 45 minutes, which for a Disney film, for a, for, a, for a Disney sports film, I actually think is quite short, but you're also not missing anything. I think that just might come by just by virtue of it being a bobsled. You know, it's not a hockey game. It's not a baseball game. It's not a football game where you're getting scenes that are are full plays within yeah. the sport this is just the run of the bobsled and that's it there's yeah, only yeah. so many ways you can shoot it so many angles so much story you can put in when your core characters can't actually talk to each other right well that's the thing right it's not an hour-long hockey game it's not an hour-long football game it's not a baseball game that can go three or four hours it's a 59 second bobsled run so I think you're right. It does kind of, the pace of the movie plays off of the pace of the racing, but they jump right into these Summer Olympic trials. And when 
Junior trips. It's in slow motion. The score, the musical score, is spectacular. And how it goes from this really upbeat, uplifting, we're going to the Olympics, and it slowly kind of fades, and it slows down, and it becomes this morose tune. And you see how they trip and they fall, but what has always struck me, every time I watch this film, it's like I've seen this film for the first time, when Darice has the dirt covering his face because he really did face plant on this track. The look on his face, the disappointment, the heartbreak, it's real. I mean, Leon did an incredible job with this role. We'll talk about the cast soon. But, I mean, that that's authentic. You don't fake that, that look on his face. And it is stuck with me from the first time I saw this film to the literal hundredth time I've seen this film. Yeah, the way that he is emoting through that slow motion is incredible because slow motion sometimes in a scene like that, it works when everybody's falling, but it has a tendency to look cartoony when when you focus in on someone's face in slow motion and it's not that at all. Uh, worth noting too, the composer for this film is none other than Hans Zimmer. And I feel like that's why that transition works so well. But what amazes me, what you know, his name comes up in the opening credits and it's kind of like, wow, Hans Zimmer did this. It was pretty early on in his career, within like the first decade of his work as a composer. And now when you look at, you know, he's got over 200 credits to his name. It, it, it's just amazing that this is one of them. It is. and But it's so different, right? Yes. Like, what you're used to hearing from him, but it's incredible at the same time because you have these like uplifting Olympic scores and you've got these steel drum tracks and then you've got country tracks. And you know, it's just, it's, I mean, honestly, like call me biased, but I think it's one of his best works because there's just so many different genres and they all work in harmony. Steel drums shouldn't work with Olympics, shouldn't work with country music, and Hans Zimmer finds a way to make it work. I'd be really interested to know if he had a hand in any of Sanka's chants. No, actually. <laughs> um, but I'm going to put a pin in that until later, because I know at least one of the Sanka songs was kind of quote unquote written by one of the other cast members but I'm going to I'm going to put a pin in that until we start talking about the cast. Okay. All right, let's talk about how we meet Irving Blitzer. The introduction to John Candy's character because Doris goes to the Olympic t- committee to Mr. Coolidge and he's begging him to rerun the race because he says it's not fair I got tripped. And he sees a picture of his father on the wall who in the film is depicted as a gold medalist, and he sees him standing next to Irv Blitzer. And he wonders who it is because he's never seen this person before. And that's when Coolidge says he was an Olympian, he was a bobsledder, he had this crazy idea that he could take sprinters and turn them into bobsledders. And you could just see the light click on in Darius's head. I like that moment, and I appreciate that you do sort of need a crazy reason to form this bobsled team. And it's that, you know, you have all of these athletes and now they're down for the count. But I feel like Darice loves running. He's so passionate about it. And you can see that. 
I feel like it's almost a knock against the character in this moment because that should continue to be his motivation, not just an Olympic medal. Right, because especially when Coolidge says, you know, we have spots in boxing and cycling, you can work on that. And he, and he says, I'm not a boxer, I'm a runner. Um, I mean, I, yes, I think, I, I see what you're saying, but at the same time, he doesn't want to wait four more years. Because remember, in 1988, the Winter and Summer Olympics, they were pretty close together. You'd have one year, I mean, they would be four years apart in terms of four years in between Summer Games and Winter Games. But they weren't, it wasn't, you, you didn't have an Olympic every two years. You would have the Olympics in back-to-back years, and then you wouldn't see it for three years. Right. So he just wants to jump into it right away. I mean, I get that. And, you know, that's the other thing. Like, I'll buy that they're athletes. They're young now. Four years could make a difference in your performance. It could make a huge difference. Right. He's at his prime now. I I totally get that. But, and to an extent, it's still sort of running when you're pushing the bobsled. So I I can see how he thinks that his skill set would apply here. But... I don't know. I I just feel like the motivation is kind of off because it's also not like he's trying to impress his father either. No, but he is trying to live up to his father's legacy. So I feel like they never come out and say it, but I kind of feel like because his father had a history with Irv Blitzer, like he feels like he's still carrying in his father's footsteps if he does this bobsledding thing instead of the traditional track thing. Okay, see, I will buy that more because... Like with Junior's character, that's where you have that relationship where he's trying to win over his father. So, yeah, I I guess that sort of makes sense. Right. And and to take it a step further before we talk about Irv, because I want to I don't want to forget this point. You know, you have uh, Doris who's trying to live in his father's footsteps. You have Junior that's trying to impress his father, trying to prove himself to his father. Get his acceptance. And then you have Sanka, who is this. You know, what do you say? Seven, seventh, you know, uh, push cart derby, and he and he's the best push cart driver in Jamaica. So this is a step up for him to now become an Olympian. And then you have Yule that just wants to be rich and famous because all he wants is to leave Jamaica. Right. So like they don't, you know, you have uh, you have Sanka that's chasing another trophy and going along with his best friend in Yule that just wants to be an Olympian for all of the wrong reasons, I think. Um, so they each have their own reason why they want to be and why they should be Olympians. And really none of them are one and the same, which does create for an interesting dynamic as the cast kind of gets fleshed out and how they get, you know, the way they get to know each other along this journey. Right. And it, it makes sense because everybody has a clear motivation and where they don't necessarily, I mean, for Doris and Sanka, it's a little bit different, but for Junior and Yule, where they don't like each other, they still have to figure out a way to work together. But that doesn't, uh, what I like about their relationship is that doesn't drag out where they're at odds with each other, like so many other films in the genre where they don't get along the entire movie. And then, you know, you get down to that third act final, we have to work together to win. And then they start getting along. It's not like that with these two. No, the one thing that you can, that you can say about this film that is so different, not just from Disney sports films, but sports films in general. This is about overcoming adversity and proving yourself and kind of 
you know, it, it is about the journey. And they say, you know, Doris says, cool runnings, peace be the journey is kind of the whole message behind it. This never becomes the cheesy sports movie. It definitely breaks out of all those tropes. Yeah, and that's exactly what it is. It's a trope. All right, let's move on to greeting the sled god because we talked <laughs> about how the how the characters are motivated differently. Let's talk about our introduction uh, introduction to Irv Blitzer. He's in this bar. He smashes a radio when he loses a horse race. He's working as a bookie, down on his luck. We don't quite know why he's down on his luck. And he does not want anything to do with coaching these guys in a bobsled um, to the point where he takes a bobsled poster that he had on the wall in the bar and he tears it down. Um, I love the introduction to the character. I love the mystery behind the character. And they still find a way to keep it fun and lighthearted because they're, because they're really using Doris and Sanka. Because um, John Candy, if you think about it, it's not really doing anything all that funny. But he is playing off of the other two, and that's what's making it hysterical. My only issue with Irv's introduction, and this is just purely an issue with story. You know more about how much of this is based in truth than I do, so correct me if I'm wrong here. It just feels a bit produced that Irv has been there the entire time. I can understand the notion that after being burned by your community and you want to get as far away from the snow and ice as possible and not think about it. So I will totally buy that you've gone from, you know, that you've gone from Canada to living in the islands. I just feel like it feels a bit produced that he just happens to be right in Jamaica. I was kind of like, where's the journey to go get him and convince him to help you like go to another Island and, and reel him in. Right. So I'll just, you know what, why don't we, I'm going to put this out there now. Usually when we do these sports films, we, you know, specifically we did it with Remember the Titans. We kind of ran through the story and then we talked about what was different and what was real life. I think maybe we'll just kind of go about that as we break the film down. Because frankly, this film, they don't claim it to be based on a true story. It's inspired by a true story which was kind of my issue with Remember the Titans in that other than a few character names and the name of the team, nothing about that movie was really based in truth. Um, This is inspired by a true story and, spoiler, is more based in truth than Remember the Titans. Um, So to answer what you said, the reason why it feels produced is because in real life, Irv Blitzer was not a real person. Right. Okay. There was a bobsledder that did end up becoming a coach, though he never coached the Jamaicans, that had the idea that you could take sprinters and turn them into a bobsled team because they could run fast and push the sled quickly down the ice. That much is true. That much is true. Um, And I'll go back one more, and, and I'll say that the character names here are not the names of the real first Olympic bobsled team, and Doris's father was not an Olympian. That was done for dramatic purposes. I did not think that Yule Brenner was actually on the <laughs> Olympic bobsled. No. no, well, I, I mean, that's kind of that's kind of a funny thing. Yule, Yule Brenner was an actor in you know classic Hollywood cinema. He was he was in Ten Commandments, I believe. Wasn't he in The King and I? Yes. Okay. Yeah. So I I get it. That's that's kind of funny that you know they're they're naming 
Yule in this case after mainstream media. Right. But yeah, I, I I didn't think that that was based in truth. It wasn't. Um, and neither was Irv. Ir- Irv is sort of an idea more than he was a real person. So to that point, yes, I agree with you. It seems odd that he's been planted there the whole time and, you know, it's the first they've heard of him. But at the same time, it does make sense to your point that because he is a disgraced Olympian, get me as far away from this sport as possible where I can kind of hit a reset and nobody knows who I am. But at the same time, in theory, everybody kind of should know who you are and why you're there. Right. Well, I'm fine if you drop some truth as we're going through because this is not my first note of that kind okay. where something feels produced. All right. Um, let's talk about the meeting. I love the meeting scene when they have all of those quote-unquote Olympic hopefuls that come out and Irv has the reel-to-reel on and he's showing footage of bobsled crashes and when they turn the lights back on, the only three left in the room are Irv and Sanka and Doris. And then you get both Huel Prenner and Junior that come in and it's just this motley crew of people that just come together for all those reasons we talked about. It's a really unique motivation, but I love everything about this scene and how they come together. As, as ragtag and as rough and tumble as it is, I, I've always loved how they come together. I do too. It's a great scene because it is... It establishes the stakes for everyone, but at the same time, it doesn't put them at odds so much where we as the audience don't think this is ever going to work out, and it doesn't push Irv away. Like, you know, he knows that they don't all get along for various reasons, but there's there's not enough where he would want to turn his back right away and think that he's out of his depth and that this is never going to happen. Yeah. I also want to now talk about what is like not the average training montage. The training montage <laughs> yeah. you have seen in every sports film. Um, that is not what happens here. Um, this is where they really at times play up on the physical comedy, but it's also where I think it's noteworthy that Sanka might be the most underappreciated Disney character of all time. Agreed. Uh, Between him being out of his element, being afraid of the cold, being in the ice cream truck for the cold weather endurance, um, and the physical comedy, and the the way that he screams Doris's name over and over again, everything about it is just so good. But um, it's it's not like that really cheesy, over-the-top, gushy, mushy sports training. It's fun. It's lighthearted. It's hysterical. And when they do hit 5-9, getting into that bobsled, and to just see John Candy come down that hill, like you just feel so good for them. It's definitely uplifting. And I feel like this is where you don't get that drag that you otherwise would from Junior and Yule not getting along because you would have that training montage juxtaposed against them arguing. Uh, So I think that's a testament to the screenwriting. To your point, all of the humor threaded through is a testament to the screenwriting and just the pacing itself because it is sort of a montage, but we're not seeing... 
I think that's where they were really smart about it because they have to work as one unit. You don't, it's not like the Mighty Ducks where you're seeing everybody hone their individual game. Like, well, I'm thinking D2. D2 was always more my movie, but like where you have to have Luis Mendoza work on stopping or you have to teach Dwayne how to apply the rodeo to the ice or, you know, Keenan with his knuckle puck. Uh, you can't have those individual moments here because that's not what the sport is. So they were just very smart about how they structured it. And I think it also would have dragged because now they're training on land. You haven't got them to train on ice yet. And we're going to see that again once they get to Calgary. So I think two montages would have been a bit over the top. I love how this is also juxtaposed against the fundraising. Yes. Because now you can see that this might actually work. And that's where the film, it just, it does that great push and pull throughout the rest of the film where it's like, you see them get ahead and then they get knocked back a couple of steps. It's, you know, two steps forward, one step back. Uh, you can see that this might actually work because they got in under five, nine, but now they don't have the money to get there. So it's good comic relief that we're seeing all these crazy ways that they're coming up to earn the money, whether it's arm wrestling, a kissing booth, Sanka rapping in the streets. Oh, yeah. But Jamaica, I... we have a bobsled. T- we've all <laughs> sang it. We have all sang it. Well, maybe not you, because you only saw this movie for the first time a couple of years ago. Not a couple of years ago. It, it had to be at least 10 years ago. I saw it before we, you did the bar night. Oh, for sure. But yes, but him singing in the streets, this, this, I, I, to your point, yeah, I, I love everything about this fundraising scene. The only thing I don't like, though, is that I feel like we needed to see a little bit more of the struggle and raise the stakes a little bit. Because this is a montage where you see them trying to make the money and then when they pull it all together, it's only like, what, 200 bucks? Yeah. And then Junior comes in to save the day and... It's a very nice gesture that he sold his car to get the money, but I feel like it doesn't land as hard as it should because you didn't really see them work very, very hard. It didn't set them back enough. I don't think it's a them moment, though. I think it's a junior moment because you see how Junior's father up to this point, wants nothing to do with him being an Olympian. He got him the job at Webster, Webster & Co., and he wants to send him off to Miami. What a great name. Yeah. And Junior lied. He said, I, le- I told my father I lent the car to a friend to go work at this job. And it's so selfless. And he, and, and he says, like, had it not been for me, we'd be going to the Olympics anyway. I want you to have it. And Doris goes, you mean you want us to have it? Because Doris is always about the team. Um, which I absolutely love. I, and I, so I, I feel like to your point, yes, it's not so much about the team, but I think it's a bigger moment for junior. I would agree with that, but I do love that it then doesn't become the junior moment. It's when they declare themselves a team, it is an us now. And they yeah. all recognize that. Yeah. And so now off they go to Calgary where you have, Again, with the score, the steel drums blending into country music and Sanka unpacks his bag, puts on every article of clothing that he owns and then puts the bag on because he just can't handle how cold it is there. I remember that from the trailer. Yeah, 
I and that that line of because they've you've never seen your breath in the air. So when Sanka comes out and he's coughing because it's twenty five below zero, and Therese says, "What you smoking?" That is surprising to see in a Disney film, but I love that they went for it. Yeah, um, the whole fish out of water thing um, is just spectacular, and and now. The other thing that the movie starts to do well, really from here to the end of the film, is it does a really great job of blending drama and humor. Because when this film was in development, it was in development hell for a few years, because at first they tried to do it as a dramatic film, and it wasn't working. So they rewrote it to turn it into a comedy. Obviously, we know it works really well as a comedy, but the blend works so well because up to this point it's been so lighthearted because it's you you have this winter sport coming out of this tropical climate but now is where you start to see the adversity that the Jamaican bobsled team was up against whether it be other competitors or the committee and this is where you have that great pacing because we've seen them start working together then they have to get the money okay they get it now you get to Calgary and now there's all these new setbacks not having a sled, having to adjust to the cold and the ice, and then being intimidated by these other teams. Yeah, um, so this is, again, where they play with the story a little bit because um, when they do get to Calgary, um, in the film, it's, you know, it's, it's being shown to us as if the other competitors feel like they don't belong and they're kind of ostracizing them. Um, but in reality... While the Olympic Committee wasn't totally fair to them, um, and while the Olympic Committee did actually disqualify them, and then they had to get an appeal, the thing is, the adversity that they faced was really with getting the money and getting the committee behind them. They never had a problem with the other competitors. The other competitors, the other teams, did lend them sleds. They were very... um, they they were compassionate and they really did kind of rally around them and, and they did everything they could to get them prepared for the Olympics. See, and that is what I found kind of unbelievable here because I feel like that is the whole spirit of the Olympics, right? Is that you just acknowledge your fellow athlete and you're also proud of the accomplishment to have made it that far. There is such a camaraderie and there is such a... a you know, just that human spirit to help each other, to see it play out in this way. I feel like it was a cop out way to work the racial injustice in there. And they should have leaned into it harder with the committee and the adversity that they actually faced. Yeah, um, I think, yeah, they they certainly could have leaned into it more with the committee, but I don't think it would have followed. I don't think it would have carried the weight if it were just the committee and the rest of the Olympians are rallying behind them, because if they're being rallied around, then you'd think the committee would just eventually buckle. And I think that they did it in a way that was really smart because, you know, Irv says, you know, we're not winning any popularity contests around here. They hate me. They hate you. They hated Irv for different reasons because he was a disgraced Olympian. But there's that line where uh, Yule says to the rest of them, because they say something like they're all staring at us or they're all they're you know they're all laughing at us something like that it was a line to that effect and but he says it's because we're different and people are always afraid of what's different see and that's where 
I disagree with you about the way they handled it because I think that that's such a beautiful message. But by having these other Olympians knocking them down, it feels like bullying where, okay, it's the 90s. We were not necessarily raising these same issues the way that we are now. And I feel like they ended up glossing over what they could have done to make a a stronger point. Well, yeah, if that's the point they were trying to make, but this was my big problem with Remember the Titans, was they really did, and I understand that they were, I understand the message that they were trying to send, but you were taking a real town, you were taking real people's names, and you were making the situation worse than it actually was at the time that the story took place. You were kind of slandering people that didn't deserve to be slandered because that wasn't the way it really played out. I disagree with you in that if you want to send this message, I think this was the better way of sending it because you weren't out and out rewriting history and playing with a timeline that really didn't exist. And I think that with a couple of those lines, and they're not throwaway lines either, they are poignant lines they tell us everything that we need to know without beating it over your head. Um, and the other thing to keep in mind, at the root of this movie, it's a comedy. That's the thing. You're also, right. and I, maybe you can make the case for you're trying to send this message in a comedy, which within itself, you could say, well, I don't I don't know if that really works because it's almost too lighthearted. But I, I think they told the line just so well here. No, that's a fair point that there is a very big difference in hitting on it in a comedy versus a drama. See, that's the thing with Remember the Titans. We spent a lot of time talking about should it have been based on a true story or inspired by. And Disney took far too many liberties to say based. Yes. It should have been inspired by. The way that they wrote that screenplay, it is a story about discrimination and football is used as a vehicle to tell it. Whereas here, this is, I don't want to call it a biopic, but being that this is more based in truth, they are figuring out ways to weave a message into the bigger picture. So I guess that is a fair point as far as why they didn't spend too much time on it, but I still feel like it was glossed over a bit. And I feel like if we were to remake this movie now, it would be at the forefront. And it should be at the forefront. But then you're just doing the same thing you did with Remember the Titans. Then you're, you're, you're taking all of these other countries that supported this team and you're making them into something that they're not. But that's my big issue with Remember fair. the Titans. No, and, it's fair. And Remember the Titans is a great movie. I think it sends a great message. It can't be called based on a true story. Yeah. You just can't. Because you're putting you're putting a lot of people who did the right thing and you're putting them in a negative light. And that and that's the thing. They forced that message out of that movie. Correct. That's why I I mean, we can go back and forth on it. But I think we're I think we're just kind of on two different sides of the fence when it comes to how they're handling this. And I, I'm just going to go ahead right now and say this movie should never be remade. Um, but anyway. Um, yeah. So now you start seeing them. They're going through their 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 time trials and it's just one disaster after another, after another, after another. But what starts to happen where they kind of do become a team 
and it's not in that Mighty Ducks ragtag kind of way. It, to me, it starts with Junior and Yule. Yes. The relationship that they form is spectacular, the way that Yule stands up for Junior, because it's very difficult to see how Junior has to deal with his father. Um, because most parents would be so thrilled if their child were to become an Olympian. His father is just not that way. He's a suit and tie, you go to work, white collar, this is how it is. We sent you to the best schools, not so that you could, as he said, slide on your backside down a sheet of ice. Um, I love that that becomes Yule's, you know, that that's the springboard for starting to stand up for junior and and how he gets junior to start standing up for himself yeah it's it's such a great scene i mean just uh, again it shows the brilliance of this comedy because of all the places that they could have gone you could have put them in any bar or any restaurant instead they go to this country line line dancing uh so you get the comedy from sanka because he's in dancing with everyone uh, and you know he's he's letting everybody try on his beret, and it it's hysterical. It's great, and then that is cut against Yule and Junior having this great bonding moment. Um, I, I love how it feels so natural that Yule just sort of felt like he needed to be a big brother. I mean, they are starting to work together as a team, but this is beyond, it, it's a great character moment because this goes beyond, I'm going to help my teammate out. And he's seen a behind the scenes with Junior that nobody else has really gotten because Sanka's just off doing Sanka, having a great time. Uh, Darice is just hardcore studying all the time. He doesn't go out with the rest of the team because he's working. Um, you know, because he is the driver and he he's the one who literally has to steer them to the finish line. Yeah. Um, so really you are left with Junior and Yule and nobody else has gotten to see that side of Junior yet. Yule's with him when he gets the telegram from his father and he just wants to stand up for what's right. It's It's such a great moment. It is. And the other thing that I don't want to gloss over either as we start to bond this team is that Darice, he is studying, which Irv put in his head when they were training initially in uh, Jamaica when he assigned them their roles of what they were going to do uh, in the bobsled. Um, he wants everything to be like the Swiss because that's who he looks up to because they were the best all-around team. And you have this incredible juxtaposition where Yule wants to be out of Jamaica. He wants nothing to do with Jamaica anymore. But then you have Sanka, who is so proud to be Jamaican and, and goes so far as to tell Doris, you're kind of putting it in our head that we need to be the Swiss. We're not the Swiss. We have to be Jamaican. Walk to Jamaican, talk Jamaican, act Jamaican, be Jamaican. Um, so I love that. In, this, in the team of four people, you have two people that are complete polar opposites, and yet they still come together under the same banner. I think part of that is because, and it's a great character moment for Sanka too, he's just such a no questions asked 
kind of a friend. Yeah. When he sees his teammates getting into the bar fight, he was off dancing, and then he just sees them, and he's like, all right, I'm in. Yeah, we all have a friend like this. Does, yeah, doesn't know why he's fighting. He just knows he's in with them. And it's it's sort of the same as when Darice first approaches him about it. Like, once he find out finds out that it's icy and it's going to be cold, he wants nothing to do with this, but he tells Darice, all you had to do is ask me. And I'll say yes, because you're my friend. And I love that that carries through the entire time to the rest of his team. Yeah. Um, we then see that the Jamaicans do qualify for the Olympics. They get their sled. They paint it. It's a really uplifting, fun moment. You do get a training montage, but again, it's not all that cheesy and it's very quick. Um, And you see, right as they're getting ready to qualify, they were at first told you have to qualify at a minute five. Then they were told you have to qualify at a minute two. Then they say you have to be at a minute or under to qualify. And you could just see how, like, frustrated... Irv gets over and over and over again. And they qualify, they paint the bobsled, and they find out they were disqualified because they didn't partake in an international competition when they came in with that time of under a minute. And this actually was happening. I I mentioned before, the committee did disqualify them. Now, it's not an all-around Olympic committee. Every individual sport has their own committee, and it was the bobsled committee that did disqualify them. And it wasn't any one coach that went and spoke to them. It was kind of everybody came together. In this case, though, that's done with Irv. And I love this scene for Irv and for John Candy. John Candy, this was one of his last roles. Um, uh, Frankly, I think it's one of his best roles. I think that for the end of his, unfortunately, for the end of his life and the end of his career, this was the best role he had at the very end. Um, And this scene is just incredible. His redemption with the committee where he says, you want to hate me? Hate me. Don't take it out on them. They did everything you asked. You know, uh, time trials in the past were Always considered an international competition. You're changing the rules on the fly. Don't do it. To, it's 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 such a great scene for the actor and the character, especially when he appeals to them and they reverse their decision. It's such a great character moment. And I love that he's also wearing the scarf. Yes. He's got the Jamaican colors on. And that is done so intentionally. It's not just that he's their coach, but he is truly standing up for what he believes in in that moment. I'm glad that you brought that up, though, that this was all true because that was a note, another note that I had where I'm not going to say that this feels produced, but what I was thinking was that it's very balanced screenwriting because now you have them starting to succeed, starting to do well. They're all getting along and they get knocked down again by... Uh, shortening the the qualifier time. Yeah. And then again, by not having competed in an international competition. And there was one point where I was like, really? Could all of that really happen to knock them back so far? But that that is interesting. And now knowing that that was all true, they really did weave it in at, at a great spot because this is, you know, you're getting to that that peak and that that climax before the third act and okay are, are they actually going to pull this one out right well let's talk about that third act because 
They do go on their first two runs. The first one is is a disaster. The second one is much better. Um, and now they're starting to get the respect of their peers, the respect of the press who is laughing them off, um, the respect of the general public. People are starting to rally behind them. And in the film, after their second run, they are projected as, as having been in uh, competition for a medal. And we get to the final scene where... They have this great time. It looks like they're about to meddle, and the sled malfunctions. Part of the sled breaks apart, and that's what flips them over. Now, the television footage of the crash is real. That's real? That's real. That happened, which is kind of impressive. It's scary. It's incredible that they lived. Um, It's very scary footage. That was all real. I mean, obviously, I didn't think that they were going to put the actors in that type of situation, but I was wondering how they even did that with stunt doubles because it, it obviously, it looked real because it was, but it, it's cringy to watch. Like, you, yeah. you think somebody's neck is going to snap off. Yeah. It's very scary. It is. Um, now, where they played with the truth a little bit here was that when that, when the uh, when the sled did overturn, it wasn't a malfunction. It was driver error. Um, the other thing was that it wasn't on their final run. It was on their third run. They they technically never even finished the Olympics because of that crash. They never went on their fourth run, and they finished dead last. They their times were never close enough to put them in in contention for a medal. But. Um, The end of the film is so powerful when Doris says, we have to finish this, and they carry the sled over the finish line. Um, In real life, they walked along the sled as it was being pushed, and the clapping wasn't quite as synchronized as it is in the the film. But it doesn't, to me, it's still kind of the idea, but they dramatize it for cinema, and I just love that scene of them carrying that sled over the finish line. It's just such a them thing to do. And to me, that, as crazy as it sounds, that's when they became a team. In that moment, that's when they became the Olympic bobsled team. I'm actually going to disagree because I feel like by this point, everyone has given up their individual game a long time ago. And... They are just focused on supporting each other and winning this and, and you know, they, they want their country to be proud of them, especially for somebody like Junior, who at this point, you know, his, his father, Senior, was very extra. He came all the way to Jamaica after, you know, they've actually got a, a horse in the race now right. to tell him, no, you have to come back. And, you know, this is obviously the moment where Junior finally stands up to him and wins him over and you know he's the one standing there in the Jamaica shirt at the very end of it um you know and they continue to pepper that humor in through that last run even though obviously it's it's very serious um I don't mind in this case I mean we we slammed not slammed the film overall but we we did slam remember the titans for taking too many liberties Uh, In this case, I think it's okay. I think to tell this whole story and then chalk it up to human error, it's definitely not going to land as hard. Uh, And I also think that in this world of the film, 
you know, all of the odds were stacked against them. They had the janky bobsled. So that comes full circle in the end. Whereas if it was if it was all on Doris and then he messed up, we're we're not going to be rooting for Doris as he carries this over the finish line. Um I what I also really like about them taking the liberty of having them carry cool runnings to the end. Uh, I just think that it's so important for a modern day audience to see that winning doesn't have to mean a gold medal. Winning can look different. And to me, they did win in this moment. Uh, and I think that's that's super important for kids to see now. Yeah, I agree. Um, which is it's very different from the film we're going to talk about next week when it comes to winning gold medals. Um, but yeah, no, I, I think you're absolutely right. Um, it's, it's, it is just one of those all time great moments and you're right. It, it does show that they didn't need to come home with a piece of hardware to walk away, uh, to walk away winners, especially because, you know, here, um, and again, this is the difference between something being based in truth and inspired by truth. Um, they not only come back to their country as heroes, but they win the respect of their peers, right? And that was really the point of what this story was trying to tell. Right. And then real life, they do get to go back. Correct. Correct. Um, do you have anything else on the story here or the or the screenwriting before we move on to uh, discuss the cast? No. Okay. Let's move on to discussing these characters in this cast uh, individually, starting with Leon Robinson, who's credited as Leon, as Doris Bannock. Um, I mean, he carries the weight of the film on his shoulders, and he does it magnificently. Agree. I mean, I, I don't... What else can you say about it? He, he gives it... it for a, such a stoic performance, there's so much heart that comes through. Uh, and I love that scene where he's opposite about uh, where he's opposite uh, John Candy, where uh, that's something we didn't really talk about story wise, though, that part of the reason uh, Irv wanted his Irv's character wanted his redemption was because he got booted out for cheating. Right. Uh, but when Jerice asks him about it, I just love that moment between them. And he's like, if you don't want to talk about it, it's OK. I understand. But I, I want to know if you're comfortable and Irv is just kind of, no, I'll tell you, all the cards out on the table. It's such a great moment between the two of them, as is the the hug at the end. Yeah, for sure. Now, let's talk about John Candy, too, while we're while he's the topic of conversation here. Um, I, I very rarely have walked away from a movie that John Candy was in and didn't think, my God, he was absolutely spectacular. Um in my in all of the films that I watch and I, and believe me I've seen them all um growing up he was my favorite um this to me is by far a top 3 role for him um I I think that he does a good job of being comic relief along with Dougie Doug but when you need him to put on that dramatic performance He's an absolute scene stealer. And I love that they created this character for this version of this story. I agree. This is where taking a liberty, you know, they they ran with it. And it really worked in this case. For me, I grew up on, 
you know, most of those John Candy comedies, but this is really, I think, one of the most serious roles he's ever had. I mean, yes, it's funny, but like it's so balanced and he does kind of have to be not the hardened coach, but I feel like this film requires him to be more serious than than most of his other work. Um, and, and I think he pulls it off brilliantly. And I just love that final shot of the film where, you know, is it kind of a week out? I think by today's standards, yes, but I feel like a lot of 90s films ended that way on just the still. Uh, But that photo of him and his smile, it just radiates through the screen. Uh, That's that's what John Candy was. That's what John Candy was everybody's favorite uncle in the late 80s and early 90s. And I think that's why when he passed away... It was it was one of those celebrity passings that if you were old enough to remember it, it hurt the world. The day John Candy passed away, I, I would go so far as to say if I had to compare it to something more recent where the whole world mourned together, probably Robin Williams was probably the closest thing in recent history. Maybe, well, then maybe now Betty White. But um, it, it if you weren't around to experience it, if you if you don't remember it, that's what it was like when when John Candy passed away and he died so young. Um, but th- I mean, that was just him, and and it was like uh, maybe maybe I'm showing my age a little bit, and I am a product of that time. But I have absolutely no issue with how that film ended. Um, let's talk about Dougie Doug playing Sanka Coffee. Um, Sanka, I, I mentioned before, he's just. Great comic relief, great physical comedy. I don't want to say he still waters run deep because he's so he he's such a vibrant person, but when he has that moment, you don't expect it to come from him. Walk Jamaican, beat Jamaican, where he really does kind of, you know, put the team on notice and, and say it's time for us to not be anybody but who we are, and that's the only way we're gonna do it. I love that it came from him, and I think it's just a great character moment. And again, it was just per- portrayed so perfectly by Dougie Doug. Agreed on all counts. Uh, yeah, I-, I think it would have been far too much of an obvious choice for it to come from Darice. Um I do love Darice, but I think... Think Sanka's probably my favorite character just because he's so funny and he really does give you the heart of the film. Raleigh Lewis plays Junior Bevel. Um, he's they count they keep calling him the rich boy. He's always in his preppy clothes. He's very much out of his element because he's not one of these rough and tumble guys like a Yule or a Sanka, or to a lesser extent, you know, even Darice. But what I love about this character was, again, you want to talk about a product of your time. It would have been very easy to model Junior after Carlton, especially because it's a comedy. The two characters are so similar, but at the same time, they couldn't be any more different. I would agree with that, especially because of the four of them he is the shortest one. So you would think that they'd set him up to be picked on and, and really 
rub it in like, oh, you're going to be the weak link and you're going to hold us back. And I, I'm talking about within his own team. I'm not talking about any, anybody else. I'm glad that they steered away from that and instead embraced it when Yule, you know, what do you see? Yeah. Oh, my. What a, and Yule played uh, played by Malik Yoba. That's a great scene. It's it's one of the all time powerful scenes in I think in any movie. And frankly, I think of all of the characters here, he's probably the one with the biggest character arc. Uh, I think because, and, and he makes the joke, he jokingly says at the end of the film to Junior, just, uh, this doesn't mean that I like you, but he says it with a smile on his face when he meant it the first time he said it to him. Um, I feel like the rest of them are kind of all the same. It's him that's changed the most. And I love I love his portrayal. I love this character. Um, I I would agree with him having the biggest arc. Yeah, I mean, I, I think that they're all obviously changed having been on this journey, but you're right. I don't know. Well, no, I think Junior probably had just as big of an arc because he stood up to his father. Sanka's kind of comes out on the other side the same. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, and I think I would argue that Doris did too, just had a little bit more weight on his shoulders. Um, but yeah, definitely Junior and Yule having the two biggest arcs, but they're they're all fantastic. Yeah. Um, Everyone else in the background character, you know, whether it's the committee, the old coach, the old teammate, they, they were archetypes. Yes, they were. I, I would have liked to see them fleshed out a little bit more other than no Irv, we're going to knock you down. Yeah. So I think that's that's the right time to talk about, you know, what the final it's 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 a good time for us to give our final say on the film, um, because you're right. The rest of them are archetypes. But uh, I'm going to go first because I'm going to be really quick. Um, I, call me bias. I'm giving this a perfect score. Wow. And maybe it's because it's one of my all time favorites and I am biased. But there's just everything about this movie is perfection i think the cinematography is beautiful the sets are great the costumes great the cast is great i think the message is great without being heavy-handed um i think i think it holds up i think that there's a lesson to be learned here i think it has a ton of rewatchability and not only is it maybe one of well it's def it's not maybe it is definitely one of the best disney sports films of all time um I think it might be one of the top, I'll put it in the top five greatest sports films of all time. I'll go that far. So I'm I'm going to, I'm going to put all of my money on the table and not just say that it's perfect. I'll put it in the top five of all time sports films. Wow. To me, it's, it's up there with Slapshot. It's up there with Caddyshack. It's, I, I think it's up there with Rocky. Yeah. I, I think it's one of the greatest of all time. Wow. Um, I don't know that I'm going to give it a perfect because when I think about the rest of the films that we've called perfect, I don't know that this is in the same category, but I do agree with absolutely everything else that you said. So, I mean, there really is no reason to say that it's not perfect, but um, I mean, story-wise, the, the script is great. The dialogue is great. The story structure and the pacing and the balance is all wonderful. Uh, I agree with you. The cinematography, we didn't talk about my favorite shot in this whole film is when they're going for the qualifier and 
the camera is set up behind the bobsled and you see them all jump in and it's this long shot and they're going down the hill and you see all the twinkling lights of the city behind them and it's it's just beautiful. It's got incredibly likable characters and to your point, it breaks the mold as far as sports films go because it doesn't follow the typical format of the ragtag bunch coming together. It doesn't give us tropey character relationships. Uh, This is definitely in a class all by itself. And I wish I had found it earlier, but to your point also, the rewatchability is absolutely there. And you know, if this is one that you haven't seen uh, and you have younger kiddos, um, I definitely think it's, it's age appropriate. I don't think that there was anything that, really stood out I mean there's there's like a pee joke that might be the most you know not even if I can't even say that it's offensive I think no. kids are gonna find that funny um by today's standards this movie would have a g rating yeah um no I definitely think it's it's a fun for the whole family film and uh I definitely think it's important for kids to watch because of the message that it sends about what winning really means we want to know what you have to say about Cool Runnings. You can let us know on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook at Monorail Radio. You can also email us like Melissa did at monorailradio at gmail.com. News of the week is coming up, but first, a quick break. If you're thinking of booking a trip to a Disney destination, you have to contact Jackie Zalezi from Magical Vacation Planner. My husband and I recently celebrated our 10-year wedding anniversary and wanted to go on a trip just the two of us. Jackie suggested Disneyland, knowing we'd never been and I had been dreaming of going. I am so thankful for her suggestion, as it was the most magical way to celebrate. Jackie got us a fantastic deal, but still constantly check for discounts to make sure we are guaranteed the lowest price. Having recently visited Disneyland, she was a great source for helpful information and had suggestions for everything, including meals, Max Pass, even places to visit in Los Angeles on our non-park day. Upon arrival at our hotel, we experienced the easiest check-in because Jackie had taken care of everything. Throughout our trip, Jackie was in constant contact, making sure we had everything we needed and answering any questions we had. Our vacation was perfect. All thanks to Jackie Zalezi from Magical Vacation Planner. So if you would like completely free assistance planning your Disney vacation, you can get in touch with me through any of our social media outlets at Monoreal Radio on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter, or you can email me directly at j.zolezzi, that's Z-O-L-E-Z-Z-I, at MagicalVacationPlanner.com. News this week is brought to you by Karma and Kismet Designs. If you are looking for media kits, print or graphic design, perhaps you have an event coming up, you need save the dates, or if you just need that little bit of Disney influence in your home decor, Kelly has you covered. Plus, listeners of the show get a 10% discount with the code MONORAIL10 at checkout. Be sure to see everything that she has to offer at Karma and Kismet. KismetDesigns.com. That's Karma, the letter N, KismetDesigns.com. So, Parks News this week, we have something very exciting to finally talk about because we have been waiting so long for the Festival of Fantasy Parade to return. It's coming back on March 9th. Now, I can only speak for us, but Festival of Fantasy is something that, like, I don't even give an hour of my time to waiting for a firework show, but I will literally give an hour of my day away to pick a spot in line to see Festival of Fantasy. I love it that much. 
I'm I'm not saying that you don't love it, but I think an hour is overstating a little bit because there is a little bit of a trick. You're gonna give you it away. I love our listeners that much. I won't give up my fireworks secrets. Although the last time we went and the first time we saw Enchantment, it was pretty much every man for himself. That was yeah. the secret. <laughs> Spoiler: It's, 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 the, it's the worst games. kept secret. <laughs> May the odds be ever in your favor. But in the case of the parades, we all know Epcot Food and Wine Festival that those trash cans make great tables. They are clean enough to eat off of. But they also, in Magic Kingdom at parade time, make great tripod stands. And nobody will stand in front of you. Yeah, they pretty much are a built-in fullback that Disney provides for you. And I feel like they are kind of the best kept secret. Well, especially for somebody like me, I'm only 5'2", so, you know, I'm not as short as a child where you need a great vantage point. I'm certainly not going to block a child's view, but it doesn't take much for somebody taller than me to get in the way of seeing things like that. So it it is a good strategy. What I am most excited about with this announcement of Festival of Fantasy coming back is that we got a definitive answer on what that means for cavalcades because I feel like that was a big debate for a while was once the parades return, are we still going to get these cavalcades, which everybody has come to love so much. Uh, And for me, I was always of the school of thought that once parades came back, it would be because attendance was high again. And with high attendance, you're not going to be able to clear the streets fast enough. And it's just going to be too big of crowds to to get those cavalcades through. But it sounds like we're getting both, which is wonderful. Yeah, it sounds like they're adding to these cavalcades. And frankly, I love them. Like, I have missed Festival of Fantasy. But these cavalcades, especially when you get a rare character... When you get one that you have a lot of interest in, it is like hitting the lottery. We've talked about that a few times. I'm super excited that we will have a chance to see the Nightmare Before Christmas parade if they bring that, or uh, the Nightmare Before Christmas cavalcade, should they bring that back for Halloween. Yeah. This is a big ask because Lord knows nothing gets complete due to the budget, but here's my pitch. Okay. Especially because you have to capitalize on the popularity of Encanto, right? Mm-hmm. Easy build for a float. You do the casita and, you know, because it's all different tiers, mm-hmm. you have like a character on each tier of the casita. It would be so easy and so magical. Yeah, I mean, I, I feel like that's a given at this point. I mean, if you're looking at the Billboard Hot 100 at this point, it would be a shock if they didn't do something Encanto related. It, it wouldn't surprise me... If it's not a cavalcade, if they just add a float to Festival of Fantasy at this point. Right. Or it would be really great for Epcot. Oh, like an Epcot cavalcade, you're saying? Because they do have them. They have the car with Minnie and Mickey. They have the Frozen one that comes through. But it would be great being that Columbia is not represented in World Showcase to incorporate that in. Yeah. And speaking of other Disney parks... Let's talk about studios for a second because we do have aerial views of the Phantasmic Theater and they have finally put the water back in the theater. So we don't have an exact date for the return of Phantasmic. We know it's coming back to Disneyland, but I mean, logic would dictate that now that we finally have water back in the lagoon, we can look, I'd say 
by Memorial Day because it's Disney. So if they have water in the lagoon, it's going to be another five months. But I'm thinking at least by the start of the summer, we're going to have Fantasmic back. I would hope so. I mean, normally we don't like to speculate on things like this, but they have released these photos. That lagoon is full, and I believe either they modified the boat or they have a new boat, but it's definitely larger than the ferry that was there before. For sure. I wonder if they're still going to bag Ariel at the end or if they figured that one out. I mean, you would hope that with all of this time, they'd find out a better way to pull it off at the end of the show. I mean, I understand it's a hazard with the fireworks, but I, and they don't want to ruin the magic because she can't just get up and walk away. But Eric can certainly carry her. I'm pretty sure he did it once or twice in the movie. Right. I guess we're going to find out soon enough. We also have some Disney Plus news, but it's also some personal news. It does hit close to home. Because a program that Jackie worked on did drop on Disney Plus, much to, definitely much to my surprise, also to your surprise. But we are excited for anybody that missed it in its original television run that it's out there for the world to find. This is very surreal talking about a Disney Plus show that I have something to do with on Monreal Radio. This is kind of blowing my mind right now. Uh, yeah, last, well, in 2020, we started uh, working on a show called Call to the Wild, and it was pushed back and pushed back, and it didn't air until December 7th. That was our <laughs> first day on Nat Geo, and I was so excited to finally be able to share it because, you know, my friends and family knew that we had been working on it, and they kept asking me when it was going to premiere, and... I had no idea because it had gotten pushed back so far. So we were finally uh, able to share it with everyone. And I knew eventually it was going to go to the streamer. I had no idea when, no date. And I was hoping, Disney, for a little bit of pageantry that you would (laughs) show some more trailers when this thing finally dropped. And no, I found out from my boss yesterday that as of this weekend, it was up on Disney+. Plus. So... I'm super excited for that. I still haven't fully wrapped my mind around it that something that I had my hands in is on Disney Plus, but uh, you can watch it now and I hope everyone enjoys it. If you go on Disney Plus, scroll over to Nat Geo and it's under featured shows. Thank you all so much for joining us this and every week on Monoreal Radio. Don't forget to like, subscribe, and rate us on Verbal or your podcast platform of choice. Be sure to follow us on all of that social media, Twitter, Instagram, and TikTok at Monoreal Radio. You can email us monorealradio at gmail.com. We loved hearing from you. And for links to everything related to the show, you can find it online at monorealradio.com. For Jackie, I'm Sean. Have a magical week, everyone. On behalf of Monoreal Radio, we'd like to thank you for joining us. We'll see you at the movies, the stuff dreams are made of.